Hello, and welcome to this discussion of brand new book, Big Mother, with its author, Jason Horsley. Thank you very much for coming in. Hello, Connor. This book is slightly more esoteric than some of our audience may be used to. It was, especially from reading the blurb, I felt like it was almost something that I was... It felt like it was made for me. I mean, you're combining technology, demonology... Um, Scepticism of of the state, gender issues, serial killing, all into one big package, and so I just wondered if, for people who aren't necessarily familiar with your career history, um, what was the impetus of this book? What what gave you the inspiration to to start it? How did it grow? Right. Well, um, the first thing that came to mind there was I don't know if you managed to read. Uh, Big Mother add-on I sent you in an email, but mm. what happened when I was reading it prior to coming to London for the launch um, was that I realised, I felt, having reading it all the way through, uh, that I had actually left out something really crucial, which had to do with uh, really making clear what I... The, the correlation between all of the subject matter that's covered in the book and this idea of a crypto matriarchy or gynocracy first of all that um and second of all my own mother uh because t generally in my books i do include autobiographical material because i think it's vital and essential to keep it grounded for myself but also for the reader um <clears throat> And in Prisoner of Infinity, for example, even though it's about Whitley Strieber and alien abduction and social engineering and trauma genesis and all these, again, big, big picture subjects, I did include stuff about my father because there is a lot of stuff around the Oedipus complex and things. And somehow I left out my mother. This is a long way around to answering your question. And, and I felt that that itself illustrated something because it's the crypto matriarchy, like the influence of the mother uh, on on serial killers or social engineers uh you know, powerful male figures in society is hidden that just is in psycho the movie psycho um and then, and so somehow it something in me had prevented hmm. me from actually including that even though i felt it was vital so uh and i mention all that because in a way and i consider big mother optimistically i consider it the last book I will ever write about hell, quote-unquote, or you can take the quotes off if you want, like if you're a Christian out there. Uh, to me, hell, uh, hell is, the hell that we can see is hell on earth. There might be some metaphysical realm where there's some correspondence, but certainly you know, the society that we've co-created over generations, to me, it's more than metaphorical to call it hell. Uh, anyway, so I've been writing this series of books since 2014, roughly, with Seen and Not Seen, that are an attempt to uncover the true nature of our society by looking closely at society, but also looking closely at myself and kind of mirroring the two. Like I can use society as a mirror for my own psychological disformation, uh, but also if I look at my psyche, I can then you can't really look at your psyche, but if I look at my own patterns of neurotic behavior and my own, get a sense of my own traumatized uh, soul and body, then then I get 
a really felt direct sense of what society is doing to us because it did it to me personally. So, um, so yeah, there's this series of books that I call Mapping Hell, and I think Big Mother is the last one. I hope it is. I'm sure it is. Um, and uh, uh, so it makes perfect sense. It is Big Mother. It's about. It's not about my mother because I say I left her out, but implicitly it is because mm. I, I am an example of the complexes that I'm writing about there. Uh, obviously, I'm not Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg or Ted Bundy um, or Sam Harris. Are some of the examples I have in yes. there. Uh, but but uh, but on the other hand, I can look at myself. You know, I've got a much closer, more intimate relationship with those pathologies uh, within myself. So um, yeah, the point I'm making is is that I've been trying to uncover this secret of my own maternal enmeshment or psychic maternal psychic bondage uh, for this whole process of writing. That's kind of the thing I'm trying to resolve. Um, well, it's useful to disentangle that a little bit because I find it interesting that you said that there's almost a psychic blockage there of you not going as far as you could with standpoint epistemology because there's a a totalitarian maternal influence that seems to loom over culture. It's like the, the Jungian archetype of the devouring mother. Yeah. That's something that Jordan Peterson and Mary Harrington and I have spoken about in infesting institutions. But also there's a kind of vacancy behind it as if that is not the the true motivating force. It's not that the, the gynocracy is the end goal. It's the longhouse at the center of a broader global village. And that this is something that you were, you were focusing on in there is what is the, the animating principle that, that whether it's in quotations hell or whether it is the demons really in the wires that is pushing through all of these forces that are disembodying us from, from time, from place, from a sense of psychological wellness with everything from transgenderism to, to serial killers. What, what is the, the spirit that's behind this, this, um, looming sense of a big mother rather than a rather than a big brother and that's what that's what i found really interesting so so that that that's probably a better place to go then why big mother and not big brother right because obviously the pun is in the title and most people especially when they're critiquing dystopias they immediately fall back on 1984 and they think of the big paternalistic state yeah why is it a big maternalistic state yeah well i mean why am i writing about it i mean the answer is because it is right mm. okay people don't necessarily see it but, but you do and hopefully presumably many people who are going to watch this do see it they do have it so it's become more visible that there is the, the totalitarianism we're under is 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 more of a female totalitarianism. It's a it's a overprotective, overcaring state uh, to, to an extreme, to a pathological degree, uh, and a lot of the protective, caring uh, agendas or uh, whatever we're going to call them, they they just do seem to be wolf in sheep's clothing. They do just pretext to control us. But nonetheless, there is a consistency behind the sort of rationale. And it is true, I think, indisputably true, that the kind of Orwellian state that we're living in now, uh, what is it, 80 years after he wrote uh, 1984, uh, it doesn't look like a, a jackboot you know, on a human face forever. It looks more like a needle in your arm that's saying, trust me, I'm a doctor. Mm. Right? It's a, this is for your own good. And there isn't, a, there isn't this obvious uh, oppressive presence. Uh, a big part of this is um, 
what we've seen or I feel I've seen is is that uh, people have been conditioned to police each other. So there's this sort of soft totalitarianism again and, and whereby the iron boot doesn't have to show itself or the iron hand because everybody's been conditioned to keep each other in line so that draconian presence doesn't have to show itself. Um, I think I lost the thread there. But yeah, you're correct. And I think this is what Jonathan Haidt's written about quite a lot, um, as well as numerous other psychologists. And that is that female competition mechanisms are more covert. And therefore, if you're going to have a more female-centric totalitarian society in temperament, you're going to outsource the enforcement costs of behavior policing to social shame and henpecking. And it's going to be more concerned with the egalitarianism of how you feel than the hierarchical arrangement of um, there's a there's a, a a party class and the pleb class like it's 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 a more it's a softer but more insidious form of totalitarianism than the Stalinism that commands you clap for the dear leader for example and that might be why it's more successful that's why it's that's why it's leaked everywhere because we can't really see it as yeah. much you can feel it though you can definitely feel it yeah yeah and um, I was thinking about this or talking about this recently that. Uh, this is very theoretical, but it's almost as if the hardcore fascism that we know historically now, Stalinism and Hitlerism, uh, you could say that they were tested, would they were, but you could also say that part of the testing of those kinds of totalitarianism was a way of priming us as collectively to think we know what fascism looks like. And so then we can, it's like it, we, we expect it to come from the right. And so we're just looking at the right for the jackboots. But no, they've already tried that. It didn't work. And part of trying it, maybe and maybe knowing it wouldn't work or maybe not, but whatever is, okay, now we can definitely come from the other side because we've this is, this is a collective psychic imprint. This is the thing to avoid, right, is fascism. Mm. And it's coming from over there, right? So everybody's looking over there. So it comes from the left, right? That's, I mean, I think that's indisputable whether it was planned in advance or not. Um, and to bring it back to the uh, mother-brother thing, if I can, uh, I think there is a parallel in this. And certainly in our culture, there's, a, there's an enormous tendency to blame the male, the toxic masculinity, and to look at abusive fathers or absent fathers, although not so much that, because generally there's a view of it doesn't matter if he's absent because you don't need a father anyway. There's, I mean, that, there's a big clue in that, that that's become culturally accepted, that a father is expendable. Um, so, but either way, uh, there is a tendency to identify the problem in terms of um, bad parenting with the father rather than with the mother. And obviously the cliche, I think it's obvious, of a bad father is, again, it's much more, it's written much larger. Like what does a bad mother look like? Mm. Um, it's much subtler and more insidious that the harm that uh, uh, bad mothering can do to a psyche in particular, you know, I'm focusing on male psyche for reasons maybe we'll get into. Uh, it, it, it's much more invisible and therefore more insidious. Um, and uh, But the effects are much deeper for that very reason. Well, that's the interesting thing about the institutionalization of care. This is something that I think uh, some of the more reactionary women that are looking at modernity and going, well, hang on, we've, we've technicalized everything um, up until and including the female body with 
birth control, with abortion, with surrogacy, with daycare. Um, what you've done is you've extricated the father from the home and now you've extricated the children from the home, but it's not that you've disconnected them from a mothering influence. You've pathologized the mothering influence and then stuck it in a baby factory, essentially. And so you've now got a collective societal swaddling that is impeding their development while also giving them a maladaptive connection to the state, to its institutions, to its poorly paid um, representatives in in daycare and, and schooling and things like that, um, which have very maternal instincts. They're, they're almost ubiquitously populated by women. But the children, are not, uh, they're being reared in a maternal way, but it's that Oedipal mother rather than the, the comforting mother. So father's entirely gone. Mother has been pathologized, institutionalized and, and rolled out totally. And that's what's creating the kinds of people that want to go out and write in the street and, and tear down the civilization because they don't really feel connected to it. Yeah, well, that's like a tantrum, I think, in this analogy we're making because, I mean, one fairly simple way perhaps to illustrate the big mother state as it's evolved is, because we're in Britain, you know, the, the social the care system, social support system, that doesn't foster autonomy uh, and independence and self-sufficiency. And so if you think of that in, in the microcosm of parenting, a mother uh, coddles the child, keeps it safe, keeps it warm, um, uh, whereas the father at a certain point comes to intervene and to take the child outside of the mother's influence and to teach it to stand on its own two feet. That's the father's role. And so we, I think we could see that the state, if we're going to call it out, but the big mother state for simplicity's sake, that that's one of the ways it's, it's evident is it hasn't, it hasn't been doing this. It hasn't been motivating and driving. And I'm talking particularly about men because it's complicated because of course women have been more and more uh, encouraged, quote, or manipulated to become autonomous and independent, uh, even though they're, they're in the same system of care. And obviously, uh, single mothers have been supported. So that also, you know, increases the chances that fathers will be made obsolete. So there are, there are a lot of nuances. There's danger of oversimplifying. But the main point I did want to make was just this, that um, uh, autonomy isn't fostered uh, by this, the state, the care state, whatever we want to call it, the nanny state. Um, and that's intentional, is my view. Like I, uh, Vice of Kings that I wrote a few years ago was specifically about the Fabian Society and the formation of the Labour Party and the principles behind the Fabian Society. And uh, uh, that it, it's not, it wasn't, I don't think it was a matter of not, of lack of uh, far seeing uh, that a, a, care, a social care state uh, would actually reduce people's self-sufficiency, that, that it backfired. No, I think it was it was mapped out in advance. Um, so uh, the yeah. So what do you have when a people have not been allowed to grow up because they've been overmothered, uh, both literally in their childhood and uh, figuratively, symbolically, as we're talking about in in society? You you have people who didn't grow up, so they're infantilized. And you see that very easy examples in terms of we live in an entertainment state. I mean, this is 
This is in Orwell. It's also in Brave New World. P people are basically constantly given all the kinds of distraction and entertainment they could ever want to death. I mean, amusing themselves to death in the your postman phrase. Um, and, and what happens there? Well, a number of things happen. But certainly, generally, impotency is going to be a result figuratively or literally f for men specifically. Uh, but impotency doesn't, you know, there's going to be rage behind that. Right? Impotency, a feeling of powerlessness and not being able to really identify what's oppressing them um, is going to lead to this kind of rage without an object. So I think that you know, it's, it's, there's bits to fill in there, but I think you kind of could correlate that to what you were also referring to as this, this kind of inchoate anger against the patriarchy, quote unquote, or the absent father. But it's not, it's strangely been reversed because there's this idea that there's this oppressive father or this oppressive male, um, but it's not really obvious. As I say, back in the days of Hitler or Stalin, it was obvious. But now, you know, where is he? Well, it was probably why Donald Trump was such a resonator for that kind of rage. Uh, even though he, was, he didn't really fit that, he wasn't. He didn't goose step. He didn't seem like a totalitarian. He seemed more like a clown. But just the fact that he was kind of ugly and unlikable enough, I think he became a, an attractor for those projections of, you know, the, the imagined oppressive father. Well, you're seeing these sort of totems like Trump. Or I was going to connect what you were what you were saying about essentially male impotency leading to to rage, um, the kind of the African proverb almost of the child that isn't allowed around the campfire will come back to the village and burn it down to feel its warmth. Uh, these are totems yeah. that the establishment, that the either useful idiots or accelerants of this regime latch onto and try to play whack-a-mole with because they can see their project having momentary interruptions. They hope it's momentary because they believe in sort of long arc of progress towards what they think is a utopia. Um, we can get onto whether or not that's that's possible later, uh, but they see this this manifestation this as as an aberration. But it's actually the consequence of what they've been trying to do. I and mean, if you take fathers out of the home, um, you make intimacy and sexuality and an on-demand entertainment system. You foster a physical dependency on this. You make it so that men, some some men, feel that they can't escape it, can't have relationships and their body is turning against them because they feel dependent on it, then you're going to get the kind of impotent rage that they they want to say, oh, there's going to be an incel mass shooter behind every keyboard. And, mm. and that justifies, again, it perpetuates the surveillance state stepping in and re-educating men and, and policing online speech. And so it has that ratcheting effect up to exactly what they want to smack down the dissidents. So it's always like a self-confirming mm. loop there. Um, which I find quite interesting because that's that's the kind of thing you were hitting on when you were talking about serial killers later in the book. I found the connection fascinating because I don't think anyone else has really pulled on this thread. And that is that the role of the serial killer in the 70s was both a consequence of technological development and also an excuse for an expansion of the surveillance state. Yeah. Do, you mind, do you mind talking a little bit about that? Uh, I don't mind uh, I, if I can find a way in, because hmm. obviously that you've just introduced the whole thing. And uh, but interesting enough, I mean, just as a, a lead-in, when I reread Big Mother just recently, as I said earlier, I was I sort of stumbled over those chapters because, and I thought, gosh, is this going to just alienate the reader? Because actually, before that, it seemed like it was quite light in a way the book, and there was a lot of 
space in it, I felt. And then when I get into Ted Bundy and this whole machinery of serial killers, I just felt like, oh, God, this is such a heavy and we're supposed to be nearing the end. So, so I'm just saying that as a, I mean, it doesn't necessarily lead to anything, but that was my impression when I was imagining people reading this book, uh, as one does perhaps as an author, you know, when it's going to be released. So it's good to hear that you found it was vital and essential because I didn't know that, that was going to be added in there I really didn't I thought I was finishing up and the next thing I know I'm looking into the deep background of Ted Bundy now I've always been interested in serial killers I mean lit not literally but almost literally always like since I was 15 or something I was reading Colin Wilson's The Criminal History of Mankind and yeah sort of brushing up on all the different serial killers um, we don't have to go into that but uh, that I've it's been a sustained interest throughout my life um, and uh, specifically I mean I the way that Syracuse were introduced into Big Mother as I think I make clear was simply an example I wanted to show an example of how we have this mainstream narrative about something uh, and then we have maybe this second counter narrative about a conspiracy behind it because my you know my belief my research indicates and Dave McGowan say his research indicates serial killers are simply not what the mainstream media has presented them they're not working alone they're part of networks that go go back decades um, and even generations like there's a tradition of psychological uh, warfare and, and domestic terrorism that goes like prehistorically actually but anyway um, that's only the second layer and I wanted to show that there's a third layer which is that you can't actually explain serial killers uh, with organized crime intelligence psyops either because you have you have to go to you know what's behind it metaphysically what's actually driving the people who are creating the serial killers um, so that that was all I just wanted to give a really f concrete example of that but then it opened up all these other avenues which is what, what got your attention uh, including well, what was the one you mentioned there, you see, because there's so many different angles. It was, was the it? ratcheting up, the oh, sort yeah. of manufactured concern. I mean, it, it, they existed because of technological development. I mean, just even something like the motor car, um, for example, or the highway. And then in, in turn, because of their existence and because of the widespread attention of something like true crime culture, which is exploding loaded on YouTube now, yeah. it creates that paranoia that then justifies the state, the big mother state, to keep surveilling and keep micromanaging. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that was certainly, that, that's the second there, and I was aware of that in my 20s, because May Brussel pointed this out. There was this Project Phoenix in Vietnam that was, that was then imported to the US in terms of this terrorism tactics that serial killers uh, function as, as a way to facilitate or justify more draconian state control measures. Um, however, uh, there's a whole other, I mean, sort of mentally groping my way around this, but I mean, first of all, there's this whole other thing that I talk about in the book, which is that it's not just that serial killers are used um, to terrorize people, they're also used to create narratives to entertain people. And, uh, and serial killers are um, romanticized. Uh, if you think of Silence of the Lambs, I wrote about that book, uh, that film as a film critic, my first book, Blood Poets, uh, because I was horrified when I saw it 
I don't know about horrified, but I was disgusted. Um, that at the end, when Hannibal Lecter makes that joke, I'm just I'm going to have a friend for dinner because he's stalking the psychiatrist and he's going to eat him, uh, and he's free. He's on the loose. This predatory psychopath. The audience laughs and claps, and and I, I just I was just kind of gobsmacked by that. Why why is this audience so delighted that this psychopath is on the streets and about to eat somebody? Okay, you don't like the character, but this, he's going to eat. But to me, it, it brought home something to me that there's something in us um, that does actually admire these individuals who act out our very worst instincts. And it's inseparable from demonizing. We can demonize them and then scapegoat them. But at the same time, we're having our cake and eating it. We're also romanticizing them and getting to live out our fantasies without ever admitting that actually we do want to be like that. And what's left in some way, we want to be, have that freedom to just do what we want, right? Be, be free of the oppression of morality and, and all the rest of it. Um, well, this was something that you you put in in the book that I didn't know about, and I'm by no means a Randian, but Rand, borrowing from Nietzsche, the idea of the Superman, the sort of totally self-legislating individual who makes his, his selfishness a virtue, she drew upon a serial killer as an uh, example of that. Yeah. I mean, that's okay. I really don't want to follow that philosophy then, if you think that that's... But it... The logic does follow that if yeah. you make total independence and autonomy yeah. um, the the end state of of humanity, and you use technology to facilitate that, then you become a a, a kind of person who uh, believes they're entitled to do anything up until the point of ending another life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the Havelock Ellis thing comes to mind as well, which Havelock Ellis was a sexologist, a precursor of Kinsey. And his perspective, as I quote in the book, was that the most uh, dramatic or the most uh, essential expression of human freedom was, was sexual perversion. Um, so that's very similar to Anne Rand's view that a free individual would go around killing people uh, because they were completely unencumbered by any kind of moral uh, criteria that was coming from outside and they simply did not care what other people thought. They're sort of complementary, like sexual perversion isn't necessarily um, pathological or predatory or psychopathic, but... Um, they're often intertwined, especially with yeah, serial killers. Well, they certainly are intertwined. And the interesting thing is, it's very intertwined with your conception of a big mother Oedipal state because that's a very Freudian idea in that the ability to liberate yourself is to liberate yourself not just from overt fascistic impositions of power on your will, but internalized, repressed, unconscious impositions on your will. And Freud obviously believed that the sexual impulse is one of the things that's most repressed. So if you abolish all the repressions on your sexual impulse, you're, you're totally free, right? Shouldn't mm. the big mother state try and enable you to do that? Mm. Yeah, so it's, it, they're, all, they're all very intertwined, I think. Yeah, well, and that's in the early leftist movements. Again, this is more in Vice of Kings, but the Kinderladen in Germany was one of the things I wrote about. These were these kiddie uh, nurseries, or whatever we call them here, nursery schools, where um, where they wanted to sexualize the children because precisely for this reason, they thought if you liberate uh, children from uh, sexual oppression, if you liberate them sexually, they will be immune to any other kinds of psychological 
control. Uh, was that the Kentler experiments as well? There was, um, was post World War Two. Uh, we've covered this on the website before. Um, there was a psychologist called Kentler who knowingly put foster children with convicted paedophiles because they believed that if they liberated them from sexual oppression, Nazism would never happen again. Yeah, it's just like mental and evil, but yeah. it tracks with the logic of yeah. repression is going to cause violence. Therefore, we abolish all repression. Yeah, no, it sounds like the same thing in the same period. I think. Um, and I think, I mean, there's something I think we could get to that would be helpful here in terms of really zeroing in on the larger picture and technology as well. It has to do with um, a lack of a spiritual dimension. When the spiritual dimension isn't allowed for uh, an understanding of the human being, then something else enters in there. Like, So what is a human being like if he's completely free to to be what he is if you don't if you don't allow for some spiritual approach to that um which you know i want to sort of bookmark that because it's a whole subject unto itself and spiritual freedom has to do really with service to something greater but that's obviously that's a whole big subject but it's certainly not Freedom just to indulge your desires, I think, is probably a way to simplify. So if you don't, if you don't allow that, then what does freedom, what, what does it look like, or what are the criteria? This whole other criteria enter into it, which um, uh, in many ways they do come down to just to freedom to indulge your desires. And we can see that as above, so below. I mean, you can look at the elite if you want, you can try to, because you can't get behind closed door, but you can speculate about the elite. Or you can look at somebody like Jimmy Savile, and he even talked in interviews about having total freedom and the responsibility of having total freedom. Now we know what he was talking about, right? Total freedom is freedom from all moral criteria to do whatever the hell you want, no matter the consequences to others. Um, so yeah, we, we've got some sense of this predatorial elite who don't have the same checks and bounds as the rest of us, but we're, we are seeing it trickle down now more and more into to the everyman culture, where there's this uh, propagation of sex without consequences and anything else without consequences, do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law, blah de blah. Um, and uh, well, where that leads, I guess, is what we're talking about. but. I think uh, you know, we, we would have to get there, but to, to maybe unpack what I'm going to say, but it seems to me that um, that technology is central to this, that technology has to do, again, it's filling the void where normally the divine would be in nature and just connecting to nature and finding our place in nature. Technology is all about augmenting the possibilities of human beings, right? literally and figuratively in all these other ways. But it's also giving our power to something else uh, that has its own agenda. We're, we're discovering. So this is, I mean, I think I'm coming back to the question you asked that I never answered, like what's behind Big Mother? Yeah? There's, some, the, the, there's some void there that we don't know how to fill. Because as you said, well, the crypto matriarchy is a means, it's not an end. It's a means to something else. Uh, and this, just as, you know, previous forms of totalitarianism were also means. But it's, I think it's becoming more and more obvious that th this fact, that, it, that all of this stuff that we're looking at that's wrong with society, we're thinking, oh my God, we're ending up in this place. 
in a certain sense we are, but, but on the other hand, no, we're on our way to something else, and this is the means to it. It's the post-human, post-gender, right, state. But what is that? Like, what's post-human? It's not divine. It's not, it's not Jesus, right? It's not a man or a woman who's just in service to nature and in harmony. No, it's, it's something that supposedly, like Havelock Ellis and Anne Rand were, were trying to propagate. It's something that it doesn't transcend those things. It, it, it defies them and it opposes them in, an unhe- in a pathological way. I think you can oppose things in a way that is, you know, it's collaborative and it's productive, but this is not. I, I can't even find the verb for it, but it's actually just it's like trying to destroy them, really. Yeah, well, it seeds the power of something that is beyond itself to itself, and that is an ultimately self-destructive thing. Because yeah. if you try and fill a vessel with too much, it, it will overflow and flood. So if the human being tries to take on the power of godhood, well, it's a fallacy. They're, they're just imitating godhood under the promise of something else that is the enemy to human nature. This is, um, I, I spoke to a, a Catholic writer who wrote Genesis of Gender, Abigail Favale, and one of her primary definitions of whatever the, the satanic will lurking behind um, a lot of the, the post-gender ideas were, was Satan is the enemy, enemy of human nature. And something akin to the abolition of human nature is the promise originally from the Garden of Eden. Again, we can engage in metaphors here, audience, if you aren't yeah. Christians. Um, eat of the fruit and you should be as gods. Well, it was, was a false promise. It was, it was conceit. But the idea was that if to be as a god is to re-legislate morality or abolish it totally, as mm. you've been hitting on. I think maybe then to, to lead into the technology as demonology broader, broader question, um, it might be useful to go down the gender route because that's a great example of that transitional stage that you were talking about of the the matriarchal big mother state isn't the end goal it's just what's bringing into being something else because this is a conversation i had with with helen joyce a little while ago and that is that she believed that much like the the people think that we live in a gynocracy and it's going to be the forever totalitarian state uh, she believed that transgenderism is a retranslation of patriarchy it's like, well, no, it's just the it's the bus station on the way to the abolition of gender entirely, the making of sex as a cosmetic individual option, the idea that we can re-legislate our, mm. our own forms. Uh, so I, I just found that your, your inclusion of, of that in, in the book very elucidating, and it wasn't, it wasn't a way that quite a few people, I think, think about that issue. Um, what? So what? That that's actually probably a better way to take it. Then, what brought you to bring transgenderism into the book that up until that point mm. had been mainly about tech? Well, in terms of how I brought it in, I mean, it's probably not so interesting because in the mechanics of how books assembled, right? They're mm. only interesting to other writers. But obviously, and actually a lot of that material I'd already written before Big Mother, but including the, the early material as well. So Big Mother was cobbling together various things, but they did, they did fit. And so, and the obvious way in which transgender is an example, well, it's an example, obviously, of two things. One is, uh, the, the male's possession by an invisible female presence, 
probably the mother, uh, as in men who think they're women. I'm like, what is this gender identity that's saying, let me out, let me out, cut my balls off so I can be who I am? What is that? Mm. You know, it's easy to say it's a demon, uh, but you don't get very far. Like, you've got to explain that, um, or some discarnate entity, let's say, that really like the D word too much. Um, uh, and, but it's also perhaps too easy to say, well, that's a mother complex, particularly in a, in a post-Freud age where Freud's been, uh, you know, tossed out with the bathwater. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.